the impacts of climate change and health are happening right now. So we have to set really ambitious targets and we cannot do this just in the federal government alone, but we can't stop now. Now is the time for action and that's exactly what we're going to do. Welcome to Empathy Effect, where we explore the human side of government. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. As you just heard, issues like climate change, health, the economy, and our government are pieces of our lives that are so heavily intertwined. To overcome these challenges in a way that improves all of our lives, we need a degree of empathy, the ability to listen to and understand one another. You may have guessed from the show name Empathy Effect that empathy will drive the conversations with our government guests on the show. We'll learn how our government is working to hear people, understand people, and deliver what's important to our well-being and quality of life. Along the way, we'll get to know our guests, the real people who do the work. So I can't think of a better guest to kick off our first episode than Admiral Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You heard her at the top of the show. Admiral Levine has extensive history in public health research and services, and she's the first openly transgender official confirmed by the Senate. Her dedication in the field has led her to now lead HHS's Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health, which oversees federal programs and priorities from public health and disease prevention to climate change and health equity. While we may face climate and health crises now and in the future, Admiral Levine and I are going to bring some hope to the table and break down how our federal health programs are working to move us forward. Admiral Levine, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Sure, my pleasure. I know we've been bombarded with COVID for nearly three years now. While we're not out of the woods yet, is it a good time to reflect on lessons learned and how we can apply those public health crises that still persist, like mental health, substance use, or diseases of disparity? You know, COVID-19 has certainly been the biggest public health challenge that our nation and the world has seen in more than 100 years. And COVID-19 has impacted our health, our families, our schools. It's impacted our businesses, our healthcare systems, obviously, as well as local, state, and federal governments. But despite the heavy toll that it has exacted, it also reminds us of a, of a fundamental truth, that we truly need each other, that our happiness and our very survival depend upon the connections that we have to one another and to our community. And I strongly feel it's that spirit of community that makes our country great. And that spirit of community is what we need now more than ever as we seek to bring this pandemic to an end. I liked how you mentioned how the spirit of community is what really drives us. So how are you taking those efforts around community to strengthen health equity and to really push that needle forward with what we need for public health in the future? Absolutely. Well, another important lesson of the pandemic is the profound importance of public health. Public health is the center of the universe right now. And we must ensure that local, state, national, and international public health authorities have all of the resources that they need, the workforce capacity, the IT capabilities that are needed 
to protect the health of our nation and the world moving forward. Um, the last thing I'd like to emphasize is that the COVID-19 has shown us the depth and breadth the health disparities in our nation. Uh, the, and so health equity really is, is fundamental to our, to our recovery and resilience as we move forward. And that includes health disparities for communities of color, the black community, the Latinx community, the American Indian Native Alaskan community, and other historically underserved communities. We know that the pandemic has affected some communities far more than others. Uh, and again, this underscores these health disparities. So we're going we're gonna to keep going on all of these fronts, and we're going to keep going as we prepare for future public health challenges. I want to focus on the health equity piece a little bit more. One of the agencies your office oversees is the newer Office of Climate Change and Health Equity. So I'd like to pick your brain on why you bundle the two together. What exactly is climate justice and how does health equity factor in? Yes, we have a new office on climate change and health equity that we affectionately call OCHI. There's an acronym for everything in the, in, the, in the federal government. You know, climate change is no longer an existential issue for the future. The health effects of climate change are right now. And, you know, we can see that in terms of, for example, extreme heat. Um, that that was that we face in the United States and really throughout the world in in terms of fires in the western part of the United States, but also in Europe, the smoke that those fires produced, uh, sea level rise, um, storms that are exacerbated, that are stoked by climate change, and so these impacts of climate change and health face those same disadvantaged, low-income communities, including the communities of color, who continue to bear the brunt from the impacts of climate change, as well as other environmental challenges, pollution from industrial development and agricultural practices, impacts of land use decisions and transportation and trade corridors. So that is why we are bringing uh, health to the table um, and uh, both within all of our work in the National Climate Task Force um, uh, th through the White House and the administration, but also um, for the world. Levine and the Biden administration did, in fact, bring the mission of driving health equity into the fight against climate change. Recently, Levine and other federal officials attended the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference in Egypt. While our conversation occurred before the start of the conference, also known as COP27, Levine shared what she hoped to accomplish there. So we're going to COP27 to build on our work in Glasgow on COP26. In COP26, we signed the, um, the uh, COP26 health program for the United States, and there were 50 other countries that did it with us. And so what we are dedicating ourselves to is to working on on actually the health sector in the United States and the health sector across the world. In the United States, the healthcare sector accounts for approximately 8.5% of, of U.S. carbon emissions. It's very significant. Now, across the world, it's about 4.5% or, or more, but it's still very significant. So we want to work on building resiliency into the healthcare system of the United States to the, to the environmental impacts of climate change. And then what we want to do is actually work to decarbonize the health system. And the president has said that, that we're going to do that in the, in, uh, across the United States government. So that includes in the healthcare systems, the VA, that includes the Defense Health Agency or, or, and the, uh, the Department of Defense, 
that includes all of our um, uh, our healthcare facilities through HHS, through through the federal qualified health centers, Indian Health Service, et cetera. And again, resiliency and decarbonization of the healthcare sector. While combating health challenges that are linked to climate change is one major commitment you're making, there are still others on your plate. We still face not only climate disaster, but financial stress through inflation, loneliness, and other stresses that are taking a toll on mental health in the country. I know mental health is near and dear to you. So what work are your office and different partners doing to support people, especially those most vulnerable with mental health challenges they face? You know, absolutely. Um, the, the president outlined in the State of the Union address uh, in uh, 2022 the importance of addressing the mental health challenges that face our nation, which includes the substance use challenges. And we are working on that across HHS under the secretary's leadership and the deputy secretary's leadership. Uh, We recently uh, released a a mental health roadmap uh, in terms of how we're going to be addressing mental health issues and particularly with that health equity lens. Um, And so there are many different issues that we're looking on. We're looking at policy solutions to help better integrate mental health and substance use care into the, the into uh, physical health and into the larger healthcare system. Um, and we've recently, uh, with the secretary, had a national tour to strengthen mental health. Um, and so this roadmap was working to ensure that the full spectrum of behavioral health care, again, is integrated into healthcare, integrated into social service systems, early childhood systems, to make sure that everyone has equitable access to evidence based, culturally culturally appropriate, person-centered care. There are other federal strides happening to increase resources to mental health and substance use care and support. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, also known as SAMHSA, released an overdose prevention strategy with four pillars, develop effective primary prevention, strengthen harm reduction, improve evidence-based treatment, and nurture recovery support. These pillars are being realized through efforts like prevention studies at the National Institutes of Health, workplace-supported recovery programming led by the CDC, and widened access to opioid overdose-related reversal treatments backed by the Food and Drug Administration. For opioids more specifically, OASH and its partners are emphasizing the importance of naloxone, a life-saving drug that rapidly reverses opioid overdoses, and fentanyl strips that test for fentanyl and other synthetic compounds that make overdoses deadly. Most recently, too, SAMHSA also helped shorten the suicide prevention hotline number to 988 to make it more memorable and accessible to those in need. So this is a tremendous effort where people can call 988, they can also text, they can chat, and they can get linked to mobile crisis services. So it really is it is landmark uh, and part of the mental health strategy. So I know you just highlighted some of the efforts that you have underway, but between climate change, mental health, or other public health challenges we face, what's coming down the line for your office that will help make the outcomes of your goals realized? Well, so 
first, I'm a very positive and optimistic person. So I realize very well the challenges before us, but I really believe in people. I believe in our nation. I believe in our world. And I think that as we come together, uh, we can work on these foundational issues. Um, and I think that we have to emphasize collaboration. So collaboration uh, among local, state, uh, federal public health systems, as well as international public health systems, again, going to COP27, uh, the, the climate conference in Egypt um, next week, um, working to make sure that we communicate with each other and that we uh, cooperate and, and coordinate with each other. And I think that is, uh, I strongly feel that as we all work together across our nation and across the world, we can we can build that better world for all of us. Throughout this conversation, you've driven this need for the spirit of community and collaboration everywhere from the local to federal and international. Can you break down the role of different stakeholders especially private partners, academics, or other groups that we haven't touched on yet. If you had to ask them now what kind of help you really need and how they can make a difference in the now, what would it be? We have to make that difference in the now, as you put it, because the impacts of climate change and health are happening right now. So we have to set really ambitious targets. And you're right, we cannot do this just in the federal government alone. We need to have this be a public-private partnership. So we have actually uh, are participating, and I co-chair the Climate Collaborative at the National Academy of Medicine, where we are working across the National Academy of Medicine and with many different healthcare systems and agencies throughout the country to invest in resilience and invest in decarbonization. And through the White House, we recently just had a, a pledge to do that. We had many healthcare systems and agencies came, that came to the White House in June. And then we just finished our second pledge um, on October 28th. And I think that that all that work together really instills confidence in me and, and hope and optimism. But we can't stop now. Now is the time for action. And that's exactly what we're going to do. I love that hope and optimism you have. It has to come from somewhere. So... I kind of want to take a step back and focus on some of your personal experience working in public health. Before you started your current position, you've done a lot of work with mental health, LGBTQIA plus health, and substance use issues. So how do you find this work you've done informing your leadership at OASH? And how do your experiences fuel what you do? So, yes, I use everything I've ever learned through my training in pediatrics and adolescent medicine, through my academic medicine career, first at Mount Sinai in New York City, and then at the Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, then in state government as the physician general, and then the secretary of health of Pennsylvania, and now to be the assistant secretary for health. I use everything I've ever learned to, uh, to, to be able to do my work in this role. So it is really a culmination. Um, and what I've always felt very, um, very gratified about my career in medicine was the, the opportunity, so it's a tremendous opportunity and privilege to help people. So again, first in academic medicine and clinical medicine. So seeing patients in pediatric and adolescent medicine, seeing patients with uh, troubled teens, uh, teens and young adults with eating disorders, and trying to help them and their families. 
teaching um, uh, residents and students about pediatrics, adolescent medicine, and eating disorders, and then doing clinical research to do that better, and then developing programs through administration to do that. What I've tried to do now in Pennsylvania and now in the federal government is to help people with that broader public health brush, with that broader public health perspective in all of the different issues that we've been discussing today. Since you've been in this realm of work for so long, obviously we've seen progress in some areas, but there's still a lot of work to do. I know you've mentioned that your partnerships drive you, that helping people drives you, but you know, what else keeps you motivated and hopeful for the future of health in this country? Well, again, I'm, I'm a positive, optimistic person, and I see the positive effects of what we're doing. So, you know, I, I, in, in, in academic medicine, um, you know, I, I saw that, that the children and the teenagers get, get better. Now, not everybody gets better, but the vast majority really recovered. And it truly is a recovery. Um, uh, and it's up to everybody, individual person with their family to, to recover from the types of issues uh, and conditions that I was seeing. But, you know, I think that I was very gratified by my ability to help them do that. And I see, you know, saw Pennsylvania make improvements um, and, and, and in health. And then, uh, for example, the, uh, you know, make improvements we were making with the opioid crisis and other public health challenges. And now, you know, uh, we've had this enormous challenge of COVID-19 and the pandemic. And, and so what I want to do is to dedicate myself to working on the recovery and resilience of our nation and the world from the pandemic, and then addressing the public health features in, 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 in that, that face us that we've been discussing, like climate change and health. And so if I'm able to help people, to help our nation and to help the world, what could be a better, what could be a better job than that? That's so true. I love your energy. And part of what we want to do on the show is showcase how people in government are human and how many of them have spent years of their lives or their entire careers working to make this country a better place. So as we're closing out our conversation today, I want to build a connection with our listeners. Moving forward, how can we, as the average person out there, help improve the health and well-being of not just ourselves, but our communities? Well, you know, at the end of many of my speeches, I say, um, stay connected, stay informed, and stay safe. And I think that that's exactly true, that people need to stay connected. Uh, they need to stay connected, of course, with their family, but their communities and their their cities and and, and also small towns and rural areas, their, their state, and stay connected with our nation and, and really to work together uh, to stay informed we have to, uh, about these public health issues and of course other issues we need to work against the uh, the forces of disinformation and misinformation um, and we want people to stay safe so I'll end with that that's so perfect I really appreciate your time here today and thank you for joining us for our first episode my pleasure it was great to be here thank you and it really was great to have Admiral Levine join us. We broke down a lot between climate change and health to mental health and substance use to everything in between that you heard. And there's more to come. We'll get to know dedicated civil servants and how they're diligently working to improve our lives. Our next episode drops Thursday, December 1st in what will be an awesome two-part special. Otherwise, Empathy Effect releases the first Thursday of every month. 
Make sure to follow Empathy Effect wherever you get your podcasts or at forsmarsh.com, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. Empathy Effect is a product of Fors Marsh. You can reach us at forsmarshmedia at forsmarsh.com with any feedback, questions, or inquiries.